Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 251. And it's been a month since I've recorded. And I'm sorry that it's been a month since I've recorded. A number of bad things happened in my life, uh, but that is life, right? I don't know if I'm going to talk about them maybe like over time. It'll slowly trickle out, but I've been occupied with a number of things and it's prevented me from recording. But I'm back, and I've got a bunch of episodes booked after this one, and I'm so, so happy to be back. So thank you to everybody who is a faithful listener, and thanks for tuning in if this is your first time. Today, I went to Bowery in Manhattan. I went to Chinatown to meet with Chloe and Anna, who are the Mott Street girls. Mott Street is one of the oldest streets in Chinatown, it's where a number of restaurants are, and they do historical food and business-based Chinatown tours. It really started up during the pandemic when Chinatown was really hard hit by businesses having to, you know, shutter up and because of all of the anti-Asian American sentiment that was occurring in the early days and I believe is still occurring uh, in patches during the pandemic. I love looking at social media accounts like theirs because they are curating their favorite lists of their favorite places, um, food and businesses and the stories that are behind them. Uh, when I'm like going down the rabbit hole and just scrolling through the internet and kind of like eating up my hours, their page is the kind of page that I'm looking at. And I think it's super valuable if you live in New York or if you're somebody who's visiting to get an idea of some places that you should check out to get some, uh, some real quality food. Chinatown is a really important place in New York City. If you live here, or maybe even if you're a visitor, you'll notice that everywhere high rises are going up. Like they're just getting built and built and built. I don't know who's moving into them, but they're like the most unsexy looking thing. It's kind of futuristic, like just these buildings of glass going up all over the place. And it like, it really destroys the unique characteristics of specific neighborhoods when every neighborhood is starting to look the exact same. I've said this before and I say in this conversation, but like that is my dystopian future. It, it really is like out of straight out of Brave New World where everything is going to be a carbon copy of everything else and we lose the unique aspects of the places that we love. So for that reason, I think Chinatown needs to be promoted. It needs to be protected and the stories from Chinatown really need to get out there. So they are doing really great work uh, through their tours and through promoting businesses online. So if you go to the notes for this episode, you will find uh, links to all their stuff. And please give them a follow and maybe join up on one of their tours uh, when you can make it to Chinatown. We recorded this one at Prince Tea House, which was really awesome. It was my first time there. We did sit outside, so I'm sorry. And thank you to Chloe and Anna for enduring the cold. It was a frigid one today. But uh, it was a great place to go, and we just couldn't record inside because it was pretty loud in there. Uh, but you should go there and check it out if you get the chance. 
I wanted to mention a company who sent me something. Uh, they are called Snack Magic, and they are a company who does these like curated uh, snack boxes. Essentially, you can go to their website and you can handpick the different snacks that you want, or you can pick like a preset box where they've chosen the options. And they've got like all sorts of stuff from from healthy to not so healthy at all. Uh, cookies, nuts, chips, jerky, drinks, uh, noodles, all sorts of stuff. And they sent me a really cool box of delicious snacks that uh, my partner and I here devoured in like two days. So I wanted to say thank you to Snack Magic and you guys should check them out. And specifically, I was talking to Jazz over at Snack Magic. So thanks, Jazz, for getting everything set up and for sending that over to me. So Voyagers, in addition to listening to this episode, you've got some things to do. You need to go check out Snack Magic and you need to go online and check out the Mott Street Girls. And then after that, you need to go support businesses in Chinatown because there's so much really good stuff there. New York is crazy. Like I, I get that. And I get like New Yorkers are crazy, but the crazy aspects to me are what makes it so awesome. There's a stretch of road where I live, a stretch of road. It's like a block, I guess, essentially uh, on Broadway in Brooklyn where the Marcy JMZ train is. So there's a stretch of block between on Broadway between Marcy and Havemeyer. And I'm over there all the time either to get on the train or to go to the businesses there. The gym is there. And if you hang out there for like a half hour, you are you are bound to, first of all, see like such a diverse range of people, but you're bound to see something crazy. Just today, like there was a fight outside the Motorola store. Not a physical fight, but like just screaming wild fight about phone prices. The other day I was buying fish at the fish market on that uh strip of block and there's a woman inside screaming about how the devil was inside of her. I don't know, man. Like it maybe sounds like too much for some people, but it makes it fun. New York is so crazy and unique and diverse. Yeah. I go through a love hate, but right now I'm on a love. So, all right, I'm going to stop rambling. It's just really good to be back. So enjoy this conversation with Chloe and Anna of the Mott Street Girls. All right, cool. Well, first of all, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a hard month, like I was talking to you about. Nobody who listens to this knows this yet, but a month ago I had recorded episode 250. I'm like, wow, that sounds like a nice round celebratory number. And I was really excited, but I haven't recorded since then. Uh, so this is really a pleasure. I've got like a bunch of book now, uh, but you guys are like the first of the comeback. So, so thank you. Very honored. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And like everybody, before we started recording, you were like, how did you hear about us? And like, this is usually my answer. I don't know exactly, but <laughs> I, I am, I'm constantly thinking about talking to people, researching, and I've talked to a lot of people in like the world of food in New York. Mm. So it's always like a rabbit hole. You add one person, they post about someone. So I don't know. I'm interested in like uh, what they're doing for Heart of Dinner, 
Okay. Or I know a gentleman by the name of Nigel who's like plugged into the food scene and probably one of them was following okay. you. Interesting. Or, hold on, just hit me, sorry. I was interested in talking to somebody that I think you know, he's a running coach, and this will probably come up later, but. Oh, um, is it from Kai? Coach Kai? Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> We're gonna let him know later. <laughs> yeah, so I follow him, so probably how I found you. Okay. Oh, okay, yes, probably. So it is audio. Why don't you each introduce yourself so people can kind of like put a voice to a name? Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Chloe. I'm one of the co-founders of Moss Street Girls. Hi, this is Anna. I am the other co-founder of Moss Street Girls. Awesome. Well, again, thank you. Uh, let's talk about where you both are from and where you grew up. Um, so my name is Chloe. As I mentioned, um, I am from the Northeast, specifically New Jersey. And this is Anna. Uh, I am from Boston, born and raised. Oh, okay. So now that you are originally from New York. No, I'm not actually. Um, I think Chloe's closer to New York since she's from the New Jersey area, still so tri-state. Okay, yeah, okay. So I, even though I'm not from New York, like every weekend growing up, we would come to New York's Chinatown because I took like piano lessons, typical immigrant story. Um, my parents would buy groceries here. We'd go to restaurants here. So I'm pretty connected to the Chinatown community here. Oh, okay. Very cool. And you're both second generation Chinese Americans. Correct. Yes. Correct. So that means, let me do my math, that <laughs> your, your grandparents immigrated to the U.S.? Uh, yes, so grandparents and also parents. I think there is some confusion between first and second generation, depending on how you defined it. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Some people, the first generation. Yeah, there. so I think the first generation is technically the, um, the individual who uh, arrived here as an immigrant, and then their offspring, right, their children, are considered second generation. Yeah, so for me, my parents came here from Hong Kong in the early 90s, um, and I was born here. Yeah. But you also lived in Hong Kong for a bit. Or for a while. Yeah, I actually lived there. Um, so as I mentioned, I was born and raised in New Jersey. But then when I was seven years old, you know, my dad was like, I tried to teach his daughter Chinese, but she refuses <laughs> to learn and he didn't believe in Chinese school. So he made the drastic decision to move our whole family back to Hong Kong. And so I stayed there from ages seven to 11. And that's how I learned my Cantonese and Mandarin there. Wow. Her Chinese is really good, actually. Uh, <laughs> should correct me. Um, I still have an accent, but it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I've actually, like, so I've been researching a bit so that I'm prepared to talk to you uh, because there's so much that I have to learn about uh, Chinatown and Chinese-American history. Uh, I guess, you know, I'm aware that throughout the world, like, Mandarin is more prevalent, but that Chinatown was primarily... Cantonese speaking for most of its history, right? Yeah, yes, correct. that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So I'll probably like build up to that history a little mm -hmm. bit in a minute. But um, what were you both like getting into? What were your interests? I mean, right now we'll probably be talking a lot about food and about history. Um, but uh, what were your interests and what did you go to school for and all that kind of stuff? So I went to school for psychology. I was on the pre-med track. So I was always interested in like healthcare um, industry. So during college, I actually did a lot of volunteer work with the Chinatown community, mainly tackling mm. like health disparities and immigrant health. And right now I'm also working in the public health fields, 
working with the Chinese immigrant populations in particular because of my language skills. So I've always been interested in healthcare, and I kind of got into the whole like Chinatown walking tour scene after volunteering at the Museum of Chinese America, MOCA in Chinatown. So that's when I learned all the history, and I realized that even though I went to school in America, I never learned that part of um, American history. So that's how I found that this was uh, a hole that I could fill as a Chinese American, telling the stories of my community. Mm, very cool. Yeah, so for me, uh, I went to school in Boston. I went to a small business school. I majored in mathematical science and business studies. Uh, and then now I'm an analytical consultant at a financial services company. So it's completely different from what I do with the Mott Street Girls, but I've always been part of like, you know, the Chinese, Chinatown community because I did Chinese dance growing up. I was also once a tour guide in Boston's Chinatown. So I have a little bit of like tour experience and then um, I met Chloe at um, a local museum and we were both interested in the Chinese American history. So we bonded on that and we got food in Chinatown, you know. So that's how all of Mott Street Girls uh, kind of started um, right in the heart of Chinatown Manhattan. You bring up a really interesting point and I, I think about this all the time because when I taught, I taught history. Uh, I became a teacher because I felt like my public school education was like wholly inadequate. You know, I was in high school during like the Bush years and the wars in the Middle East were first starting up and I had like this very visceral reaction to that. Uh, and I started reading Howard Zinn and I was like, I'm gonna shake up the system, right? I'm gonna mm -hmm. teach these kids the truth. Uh, and I was like quite mad at the history that I learned. Mm. Um, I haven't softened on that, but I have come to the point where I'm just like, how in the world can you teach history in four years to, to high school students? Because it's such a vast, uh, it's such a vast subject area. Um, and yeah, I'm not necessarily like looking for an answer. I guess I'm just thinking out loud, but I, I always think about that. Like, how can you capture the true story of all American stories, because America is a story of immigrants. I don't know. It's a it's a tough one to, to tackle, I think. Yeah, and that's where we're trying to fill in the gap with our Chinatown walking tours. Mm. Yeah, I think you're trying to make it fun, right? And I think, like, um, because we put in history, but also we connect with, like, food, you know, actually having that experience of walking through Chinatown. Um, so it makes it more memorable. And, you know, history through a textbook can be a little dry. Uh, so, you know, bringing the students out and about, you know, actually experiencing it, I think it's more impactful. Oh, yeah. for sure. I also think that a lot of people have recently signed up uh, for our walking tours because of recent events. So in our walking tour, we do connect the past and the present, right? And it's just showing how history repeats itself. I think people really appreciate that perspective. Like none of this is new, you know, it has happened before. Um, and it will continue to happen if we don't teach that part of history. All right, this might sound like a painfully silly question, but what is Chinatown? Like if somebody, if somebody hasn't been to, even though they're all over the world in, in major cities because of like the diaspora of um, you know, people from China settling around the world, mostly for work, um, but if somebody hasn't been to New York's Chinatown, they're like, what is Chinatown? How do you answer that? So Chinatown is just like any other neighborhood, to be 
like realistically, it is just another neighborhood. It has a community, right? Um, you know, people actually live there. And most people actually go to Chinatown as like a tourist destination. And it was built that way because of like survival, right? Back mm. in the days, um, Chinatown might maybe like a prime spot. So but uh, it's a prime real estate. So it's trying to move people out. But then um, the Chinese were strategic and was like, well, we're going to make it a tourist destination and attract more people. Right, so that's why they kept and stay at the, um, their specific spot right now. But Chinatown is no different, right? Uh, other than like the facade that is that's been built, um, it's just another community serving the China, Chinatown population. Mm. A lot of people like to live in Chinatowns because when you're a new immigrant, you might not speak the language, you might not know how to get connected to like public benefits or the healthcare system. So it's just helpful to you know live and congregate with people who are like from your village or from you know your city. So. That's kind of how Chinatowns were set up. And the, the term is sort of like all-encompassing, right? Because if you walk around the streets here, you're also going to run into uh, Malaysian rest restaurants or Filipino or Thai. Um, so it's like kind of like a larger Asian-American community. Is yeah, that fair? for sure. Because, I mean, even though, like, as you mentioned, like the Vietnamese, the Thai and Malaysian, they're not Chinese, but they still find a sense of community in Chinatown, mm. right? can still find like goods that they grew up with um, and also just like as immigrants we kind of have a sense of understanding and that solidarity with each other mm. yeah the immigrant experience I think it's very important right like the Lower East Side's always been a uh, you know where all the immigrants first came in right the Germans the Italians the Irish the Jews and the Chinese right so like it's really no different um, than you know other immigrant groups it's interesting because I don't this. I don't think this is misguided. This thought that I'm thinking, but uh, I think for Americans that haven't traveled or Americans that really haven't been out of their immediate community, they'll look at something like like Chinatown almost like it's a monolith. Like like there's Chinese culture and that's one thing. But if you think about American culture, right, historically or now, uh, there are many different groups that make up. America, mm -hmm. and even there's like West Coast culture. Sorry, that is a very loud car. There's West Coast culture, there's Northeast culture, there's Southern culture. Uh, China is a massive country, and we've already talked about, you know, different language, dialect, but I'm sure that there are regional differences, political differences. Um, in, in reading about Chinatown, I read that like there were politics of like some uh, property owners not renting spaces to people from certain parts of the country. So it's interesting to me, at least, uh, to think about the sort of microcosms that exist within the community that maybe not everybody would think about. Yeah, yeah for sure. Like, as Anna mentioned, like China, the first Chinese immigrants were from a small port in China called Canton, right? So most of the early immigrants are Cantonese people speaking that certain dialect, but after 1965, when the Immigration Nationality passed, that's when, like, the doors of immigration open, right? And you have people coming from, like, Fujian, Shanghai, Beijing. So even within, like, Manhattan, Chinatown, right, there's, like, Little Fuzhou. That's where the Fujianese people hmm. set up shop, live, and reside. And, you know, the older parts of Chinatown, like, Mott, Doors, and Pell Shades, mainly dominated by Cantonese people. And there's definitely, like, a rivalry between the two groups. They like to stick to each other, stick to, you know, uh, their own groups and mind their own business. Hmm. Were the... The first immigrants to come over to the States, 
I remember learning this in high school, and who knows if, that, if this is accurate, but did that coincide with the move out to California and the gold rush? Yes, yeah. So the gold rush was initially what attracted a lot of the Chinese laborers to come. So when they first got here, they had no intention of staying. Hopefully, you know, they can dig up gold and they eventually go back home, right? But what, where a majority of the Chinese laborers or immigrants started to come was during actually Manifest Destiny, building the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, and I'm actually quite surprised that you remember that from your history book. Oh, well, you were a history teacher. But yeah, yeah. a lot of Chinese American history is not taught in public schools, right? Mm -hmm. So not everyone know what happened. Um, how did the Chinese uh, come to America? And that's a very significant part of history. And in the early days when people, when Chinese immigrants were settling in New York. There were like laundry businesses, restaurants, cigar businesses, I was reading. Yes, so like laundry businesses, restaurants, like laundry bus uh, businesses, like hard work, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, especially back in the days, right, when there might not be like, you know, electricity, you have to like iron the clothes, wash by hand, right? It's very laborious work. No labor uh, laws. <laughs> yeah, so. A lot of like the Americans at that time probably didn't want to do that type of work because it's very difficult. Um, so the Chinese took that as an opportunity and they would do it. So a lot of like laundromats are opened by the Chinese. Yeah, that it, that's been America's history with labor <laughs> for for many many years. I mean, you, there's all the rhetoric right now with people coming up from Mexico and Latin America, um, but a lot of those jobs are jobs that a lot of Americans don't want to do. Exactly. But unfortunately, you know, when there's an economic depression, the immigrants are often scapegoated, right, as Correct. causing society's ills, you know, taking away the white American jobs, when in fact, in the first place, the white Americans don't want to take it, right? Like building the railroads, like that is very dangerous work, you know, working in the laundromats. It's like six days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day, you know. It's always finding something to blame. And like uh, Chloe said, like the immigrant groups are always the first to be scapegoated. And it was in... Uh, I'm not looking at my notes. Um, it was like the 1880s when the United States entered a depression, and, and is that when the Exclusion Act was passed? Yeah. Yeah, in 1882, that's when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, and that's actually the first and only U.S. law that banned a certain ethnic group from coming to the U.S. for over 60 years. So a pretty significant law um, that I feel like is not emphasized enough in their history textbooks. Mm. Yes, not taught in history textbooks mm. or like it's not a significant part, right? And especially growing up as like a Chinese American, right? I don't know that part of history. Like I, before learning that part of history, I almost feel ashamed not knowing like what is the history between between my family? Like how did they, did they get over here? Into realizing that like my grandpa worked on the Transcontinental Railroad. My great grandpa, I apologize. Yeah, like I hear bits and pieces from my family, like, you know, hearing why our ancestors came here. But was I didn't really learn the full history until we started volunteering at the museum and then I got to like see the whole history and I was like, wow, like me as a Chinese American, like not knowing that history is pretty significant. Yes. Yeah. Did your parents know that history when you learned it and talked to them about it? They would talk about like bits and pieces, like, you know, in Cantonese we call Gamsan, like the gold mountains. They would say like people were sold over there to work in the railroads and the gold rush. But like, I didn't really get the full history of like, what were the push and pull factors, like the opium war, that's yeah. why they came here um, until I actually started volunteering at the museum. Yeah, so like I was telling my father like the history and he was like, wow, I'm learning something new too from me, right? Like he knows like the basic about like the railroad because his grandpa, which is my great grandpa, worked on the Transcontinental Railroad and unfortunately he passed away um, because of that. You know, wow. it was too laborious. He went back home and like at that time, 
my great-grandpa or like a lot of the Chinese laborers, like, I don't want to die in a new new land, right? They want to go back home. So like he died back home. Um, that's how my father know about the railroad, um, but he didn't know about like eventually the Chinese uh, people move into the cities because of an economic downturn after mm. the railroad was built. Wow. And so that law, that act essentially, that lasted all the way into the six, 1960s? So it was repealed in 1943. Okay. But even then, like immigration wasn't really that encouraged until 1965 after the World War II period because of, you know, um, they were fighting the World War II, right? So once again, America needed our help. Um, they needed young lads to fight against the Japanese people. So because of our valiant efforts in um, helping out the war, finally the 1965 Immigration and National Nationality Act was passed, and that further opened the doors of immigration. I but, did my like college thesis on oh, Mexican wow. immigration, and it's mm-hmm. the same story. It's during the wars when young men are going to war, and yeah. you now have like this labor pool that needs to be filled. The United yeah. States is happy to bring people in, and then as soon as people return home, it's like, nope, we're done. Yeah, Crazy. yeah. I think history tends to repeat itself, yeah. um, and we we talk about the the wall. Um, yeah, we, we definitely, like, emphasize that. The Kim Lao Memorial Arch, right? You're talking yes, about? yeah. What's... The Kim Lao Memorial Arch is, like, over there in the Kim Lao Square. So it's, like, an arch that says, like, in memory of the Chinese, the soldiers of Chinese-American ancestry that fought in protection of freedom and democracy. So there's, oh, like, wow. an arch there that was erected in 1961, just, like, commemorating our valiant efforts in the war. Because, you know... The Chinese Americans, they weren't seen as serving in the war because they didn't have citizenship, right? So they were seen as, like, participants, and because of that, they didn't get, like, veterans' benefits. So it just shows how we were heavily, you know, further exploited because of the war effort. Wow. Yeah, they weren't citizens because of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and like I was saying before, um, I've been quite fortunate to travel all around the world, and there are Chinatowns all around the world. Um Except for China. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, but uh, more recently, maybe, I was in San Francisco, uh, which has a great Chinatown. But I even, like, I was in Bangkok, and I, I had uh, bird's nest soup in, um, in Chinatown there. And that was, like, just a really, really cool experience. But, yeah, again, I think just highlighting the importance to, to the development of cities and the economies all around the world. Um, yeah, they're all sort of intertwined with Chinese migration around the world. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, okay, so you were already running uh, food tours before you formed Mott Street Girls, right? No, we were volunteering at the museum, um, just like being museum tour guides. And then March of 2020, that's when, you know, the whole city shut down. And so the museum also closed. So that's when me and Anna had some extra time. And we were also seeing, like, you know, the rise in hate crimes against the community. Like, Chinatown is basically a ghost town. So we were thinking, like, how can we help our community when it's suffering, right? And that's how we decided to put our skill sets into good use, which was leading tours. Um, and that's how we like started Moss Street Girls and started leading our own walking tours around the city. Yeah, it was eerie in the early days. Like it, it like Ghost Town is the perfect way to describe it. Um, I don't know, the city looked really, really strange. But uh, am I correct in assuming like what you're referring to was there was like 
mostly because of a lot of the rhetoric coming out of yeah. politics um, and the fact that um, COVID is or is said to have been generated from Wuhan. That like there was all this like anti-Asian sentiment. Yeah. Um, so on top of businesses already having fewer customers and fewer patrons, people were like purposefully not patronizing uh, restaurants in Chinatown. Yeah, just worry about like the coronavirus, right? And then like there's a lack of tourism in general to New York City, right? Which a lot of these Chinatown mom and pop businesses are dependent on. And also just for a lot of these businesses, they're not on Yelp, they're not on Grubhub or Seamless. So it's harder for outside people to like support them, right? If you can't find them online. Yeah, there's a stat. It's like 92% of businesses in Chinatown are like mom and pop. Something like that, do you know? I'm not exactly sure about the status. Okay. But yeah, for a lot of these businesses, like they're not especially like tech savvy. They maybe not know the language. And so it's just hard for them to survive something like coronavirus, right? Without yeah. the tools that, you know. Yeah. So like the mom and pop shops, is like to serve the community, really. So that might be why you might hear such a big stat like that, because uh, like, a lot of the big, you know, stores that have store brand names, you probably wouldn't hear them in Chinatown. It's usually those stores in Chinatown is to serve the community that are living in Chinatown. Yeah, and Chinatown mm -hmm. is one of the last like working class communities in New York City, so that's why a lot of stuff is super cheap. But then because of coronavirus, right, they really rely on like volume sales and the volume just wasn't there. There weren't any tourists and then the courthouse people, they're not they're working from home, right? No one's going to jury duty, you know, and the courthouse is near Chinatown. Um, and then people are not coming to the businesses because of fear of the virus, xenophobia, things like that. So our community was really hurting last year. I go off in these tangents. You can probably see them starting because like, <laughs> I like look off into the distance um, and it takes me a while to like come around on a full thought. But you made me think of something when you said working class. I feel like whenever there's like infighting in this country and there's plenty of it right now, right? If it's through racism, xenophobia, like politics, like Democrats hate Republicans, Republicans hate Democrats. It's always like working class people pitted against working class people. Hmm. And I don't mean to like go down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole or something like that. You know, <laughs> I, this is not like a QAnon podcast or something like that. But I don't know, that does almost seem to be uh, a tool that benefits the power structure. Yeah, when, that's when, correct, yeah. when we're all picking off each other, instead of recognizing that we're all sort of like in the same like economic bucket, even though we might have like differences in culture or, or even politics and things like that. Uh, and that, that I think is like a real, a real shame because everyone's sort of pointing their arrows in, in, in the wrong direction. Um, yeah, I yeah. think it's hard to see eye to eye sometimes, but like you, you don't realize that you're actually more similar to the other person who might have a different perspective than you are. And I think we try to do that a little bit about tours too, right? We want people to understand the Chinese American history and maybe you can build a little bit of connection to your history, right? Because a lot of like American history is built on, you know, um, a lot of suppression, you know, of immigrant groups and stuff like that. So. I think we are in some ways trying to do build that connection. Oh yeah, there there are so many things that I think are good about visiting Chinatown. Uh, I think especially if you are someone that looks like myself from like the dominant culture in the United States. Uh, first of all, I think it's good to put yourself in a situation where you are the minority, even though you're from a majority culture. 
Um, I also like, there's a formula to, to movies, to music, to, to food that, that sells, right? And like, I don't know, if you take like an aggregate of America, probably most people more commonly eat it like food chains when they go out. And a lot of those experiences are quite the same. But when you're walking around Chinatown, for me, it's similar to a lot of places that I've traveled in that it's almost like open air markets. Like you can see buckets of shrimp where the shrimp are jumping out of them. You can walk past the store where the roast duck are hanging in the store. And to me, I don't know, there's just, it's a much, there's more romanticism tied to food uh, when you're eating that way versus like, I don't know, sitting in an Arby's or something like that. <laughs> There's beauty and diversity, right? Yeah, for and sure. And we're grateful to have a Chinatown like this because I also like traveled and not every city has a Chinatown, right? Or has all these goods that we take for granted having access to in New York City. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Mott Street is essentially like Main Street, right? So Mott Street is one of uh, one of three oldest streets of Ch- Manhattan's Chinatown. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the two other streets are Doris Street and Pell Street. Uh, and we had our first dinner <laughs> on Moss Street. Um, that's How romantic, we, right? Yes, yes, so romantic. I big Wong on Moss Street. <laughs> and that's when, you know, we became friends. And that's kind of how Moss Street, uh, Street Girls came about. Mm. And Moss Street is also like known for a lot of restaurants. So if you're a foodie, definitely check out Moss mm-hmm. Street. A lot of great restaurants there. The arcade is on March. March yeah, right? the Chinatown yes. Arcade, where they used to have the tic-tac-toe chicken. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. That was funny. There's, a, there's a chicken that plays tic-tac-toe. An actual chicken? Well, they, like, had, um, it's, like, very oh, inhumane. Peter's not going to prove it, but they had, like, an electrical grid down there. So they would, like, basically, you know, shock the chicken, then it would peck. So they could play, like, this game of tic-tac-toe. That's wild. <laughs> there used to be a live chicken yeah. at the Chinatown Arcade. All right, so uh, let me go off on a tangent. New York is so crazy. Like, <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's like that happened, right? Um, my girlfriend's uncle is like the unofficial mayor of like Howard Beach. He's like a very, he knows everybody down there. Yeah. And he was telling her a story just the other day that he used to go to this bar in Williamsburg and at the end of the bar, there was a chimpanzee, like a live <laughs> chimpanzee. Oh, my God. And it was like the mascot of the bar. And you weren't allowed to buy it a shot, but you were allowed to buy it a beer. And if you bought the monkey or the chimpanzee, I don't guess it's a monkey, a beer, it would drink the beer. <gasps> yeah. So Peter would also hate that. But like, <laughs> like, of course, that's New York, right? Like, oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. It that was a different world yeah, back then. Like, I agree. With the games and then all the subway cars had graffiti all over. Oh, like, yeah. It was a different time. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. There, there were also, like, Chinatown gangs, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, there are two prominent gangs. Uh, there, one of them, I mean, one of them is called the On Leong Tong, and the other one's called Hip Sing Tong. And their rivals, um, you know, they fought a lot, obviously. The Tong Wars. The Tong Wars, uh, which there's a book that's written about the Tong Wars. Which uh, you read. <laughs> yeah, I read that book. It was so interesting. Um, and it's, like, fascinating, right? Because it's actually not that long ago, if you really think about it. <laughs> it's less than 100 years ago. Um, and you can see the residual effects, almost, of um, the Tong Wars that has happened, you know? And... In addition with new immigrant groups, you know, from other parts of Asia coming in, right, they bring their own gang, 
right? So that kind of disturbed, you know, the gang community in Chinatown. But uh, I think as it, you know, modern days now, right, there obviously isn't uh, much going on. I think it's just, you know, more underground stuff. Yeah, a little bit more underground stuff, I'm sure. But um, but it's not as crazy as how it was been before. Um, Doyle Street specifically is uh, there's an intersection called the Bloody Angle. Oh, yeah. Um, And that was uh, coined one of the most dangerous intersection in all of America, because at that angle, you can ambush the other opponent. Right. So then it's like a perfect um, blind spot, blind yeah. spot, you know, to attack your opponent. What were like the? When was the era of the Tong Wars? Uh, it early was like 1900s. around na- yeah, 1960s, yeah. I think. Nineteen early like 1950s to 1960s. Mm. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, and actually, I read another book. Sorry, now I'm going. <laughs> no, no, uh, this is awesome because I these are like like Easter eggs in a Marvel movie. So yeah. Like when people drop knowledge like that. Yeah, so I was talking to a friend, and he like you know I grew up um, not exactly in like the heart of Boston, right? But I did go to a Boston public school, and I don't know you know what it was like you know, about Chinatown games. And he lent me a book called Chinatown Playground. And that is about like San Francisco's Chinatown. And, you know, San Francisco is the oldest uh, Chinatown in America. And it talks about like from his perspective, what was it like to be in the gang? Mm. And like, what was his life like? You know, and like post after the gang, right? And it's just like, you know, it's it's difficult that you, it's hard to not even empathize with this person because he's been through a lot, right? And it's part cultural but part of how the environment it built him to who he is today mm. and obviously he's scarred you know um, going through that experience but it's just like opens from a different perspective wow yeah I just wrote down both of those book names and I'm gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna check this out yeah fabulous book I think Chinatown Playground um, it was really good oh cool um, we talked about the sort of like virulent hate that was coming out at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, At that time, I was unaware of like uh, media accounts like Next Shark and stuff like that. And I started following and it was really disturbing. And I guess like continues to be really disturbing when they show like surveillance video of these like really like seemingly really random attacks. Yeah. Often on elderly Asian Americans. Um, women. Or- yeah, women, often like big dudes doing the assaults. Was that in, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're able to answer that, answer this, but was that something new or was like, was the issue finally getting attention? I think it's during like the pandemic, right? It's, definitely more highlighted, you know, mm. in the news. Um, and I think part of the problem with media is that like a lot of things that are highlighted is just for white Americans, right? Like that gets a lot of traction. Um, and I think that's more like a journalist type of like issue that we can't, you know, handle. But I think a lot of people do take in those news, right? They read those news um, and it could impact other person to, you know, start something, you know, be a little bit more aggressive or uh, build awareness if that, you know, from a more lighter sense um but yeah i don't 
No, exactly. I don't know if Chloe knows just like either. An, I think for a lot of people, it's just like an excuse, right? Like it's all that pent up frustration. And it's just so easy to point figures at the Chinese people right now. They have like an easy target yeah, to blame all their problems, like losing their jobs or being stuck at home, right? It's just like yeah. an easy target. I think there's just like a lot of complexity, right? We can't just blame it on one thing either. It's like part mental health, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. part education. Um, part social services and you know you don't know what that person is exactly going through mm-hmm. and like uh, but as like Asian Americans we do kind of fear a little bit you know for our parents our grandparents you know whoever is vulnerable uh, we don't want anything like that to happen to them but you know I'm glad that some part of media is like showcasing it like this is actually happening you mm-hmm. know uh, and it's it's terrible you yeah. know um, but the best that we can do is like, you know, we try to promote history and want you to learn, you know, that maybe you can empathize with each other, you know, or even sympathize with each other, you know. So I think that's like very important. And this is like our form of activism, like what yeah. we can do for our community. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it maybe was one of your interviews. I went through like your, your link tree and like checked out, <laughs> checked out everything. But um I guess it was when relief money started coming in for small businesses that were heavily impacted by the pandemic. Uh, geographic location in New York mattered, and like some China- issue. Yeah. There, yeah. So can you talk about like some Chinatown businesses weren't getting aid? Yeah, it was super weird because New York zip code, like I don't know, their categories are super weird. But Chinatown was looped together with Soho and Tribeca, which are obviously like wealthier and more upscale neighborhoods. So because of that, you know, a lot of these mom and pop like businesses didn't get federal funding like the PPP loan, whereas major corporations got it, right? Which really doesn't make sense. But the silver lining of this story is that it prompted a lot of second, third generation Chinese Americans to come back to your community and do good. Um, For example, like Welcome to Chinatown, giving out $5,000 small business relief aid to mom and pop shops, Sun Chinatown Love, having volunteers help these businesses develop a logo, create Mm -hmm. a website. Um, So it just shows like how much our community is coming together, even though the government isn't helping us. I grew up um, in Suffolk County, Long Island, uh, in a town called Smithtown. And, you know, my parents were like, I guess just like a pretty typical working class suburban family. Um, We made most of our meals. Uh, When we did get to go out, we went to like, Friendlies, (laughs) Friendlies, <laughs> or we got pizza, um, but we would get Chinese food from, you know, strip malls. We'll have the local Chinese food spot. Are you referring to like Panda Express? Like Not Panda similar? Express. So they Chinese were, takeout spots. Yeah, Chinese yeah. takeout spots. Oh, okay. Mom and pop. But um, I'm trying to think if we had like a chain like that. This might even. This probably was like pre-Panda Express. Um, but. I'm more aware now that that was like a very Americanized form of Chinese food. And even though we were at a close proximity to the city, my parents just like didn't have the exposure, the knowledge base that like we didn't go to Chinatown. Um, I mean, and also Chinese American food is good. Like, less <laughs> cereal. <laughs> okay. I love Panda Express. <laughs> that so, was why I asked. That yeah. was just like, is it Chinese food or is it Chinese American food? So I wanted to ask you, like, what your thoughts were on that. 
I mean, a lot of people think of Chinese American food as like fake Chinese food and inauthentic Chinese food, but it's also important to recognize like it is a unique cuisine, right? Like, it's something that Chinese immigrants have created to survive because back in China, like cooking, doing laundry, this is considered women's work. But in order to survive, a lot of these men had to pick up this line of work, and to this day, it's a billion-dollar industry, right? So it's something that we as Chinese Americans are really proud of, and. It's as American as apple pie, right? Nowadays, like, Jewish people eat Chinese food for Christmas, mm-hmm. even. Like you said, growing up in a white American Christmas family. Eve, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you guys eat Chinese food. So I'm like, it's something that we as Chinese Americans are really proud of. Yeah. But I also, think- like, don't be afraid to venture out of your comfort zone <laughs> and try the other regional Chinese cuisine. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting. I, I was very black and white on, like, all of my beliefs like right after college, uh, like militant about my beliefs. And that, that was something when I first started traveling, I was like, oh, I'll never eat, <laughs> I will never eat Chinese American food again. But I've, I've come around on it because of that nostalgia factor. Um, and also because of uh, an understanding again about like the working class thing, like, well, that also did serve a utility. It, it gave families subsistence. It was- Yeah, livelihood. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and like Chinese American food is unique, right? It's unique in America, but it's mm. also Chinese food, right? So I don't think there's like any supposedly hate on Chinese American food because that is a, a different part. It's different from Chinese food itself. But, you know, a lot of people just kind of uh, combine the two. Uh, and then we want to make that distinction very clear that mm. like, you know, Chinese American food was born in America. Mm. Right? Yeah. Out of like desperation yes. um, and the way to survive. Is it... Like, I'm so, sorry that I'm like so ignorant on this fact because like we talked about the even the diversity of Chinatown and I didn't mention that like yeah there's a diversity in food as well because there's I don't know if you say Hong Kongese or there's Sichuan Cantonese yeah. yes um, is that American Chinese food like closest to a specific type? It's closest to Cantonese food because like the early immigrants they came from Canton right so it was kind of like their interpretation of Cantonese food, um, but obviously cater towards the white American palate, like mm. sweeter sauces, more meats, um, whatever they can find. Like chop suey itself is leftover bits and pieces of like meats and vegetables stir fried together in a dish, basically like a casserole, right? Mm. So trying to cater their um, family recipes towards the white American palate. I see. Um, somebody told me this and maybe it's wrong. But when I was researching Mott Street, I read that Mott Street was named after a person. Yeah. But somebody had been saying to me that, um, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, um, that Mott was actually like the way that Americans heard a Cantonese word that like phonetically in their uh-huh. ears. Yeah, actually. What I learned was that it's named after a person. Okay. Uh, but a guest actually asked me if it was named after the applesauce. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my God, that was really funny. I'm like, people ask like the weirdest questions on the tours. So like, you know, wow. Mott Street is Mutt Guy yeah. in Cantonese. Yeah. And I think that might be uh, what I you were I thought that was a translation to. though of Mott Street. I thought so too, yeah. but maybe yeah. not. we're Who not totally sure. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. So let's say that I'm coming on a tour or I'm someone that finds you on the internet and reaches out to you and is like, I'm going to visit New York. Um, What are some places that they really need to visit in your opinion to get like the best experience out of visiting Chinatown? 
Food-wise? Oh, I didn't even think of like <laughs> other businesses. Categories, yeah. like shops. Um, Let's yeah. talk food. Okay. Um, you want to go first? Uh, <laughs> it's like so oh, hard. <laughs> I know. Well, there's like several different historical businesses that I would like to highlight. For example, like Fong An. Um, it's like a tofu factory. It's actually the oldest one in New York City. They sell like super fresh soy milk and tofu pudding. I especially like their savory tofu pudding. It's got like dried shrimp and preserved vegetables inside. Uh, so super unique um, dish at Fong An. Do they have stinky tofu? No, they don't have stinky tofu, but they have like sweet tofu pudding, like with a variety of different toppings, like red bean, grass jelly, boba, even. Oh, cool, um, cool. I like their savory one. I'm gonna say Kam Hang Coffee Shop on Baxter Street, um, just because uh, when I was younger, when my parents would come to New York, they would always get their sponge cake to go back home, right? So like it's a little bit of a childhood, and they're still here today, and it's like very interesting because like. We, you know, are kind of like part of the community, so we learn about like their story. Mm-hmm. So it's even more fascinating now. And whenever I come to New York, I tend to bring them back as like souvenirs uh, for my grandma because she also really loves it. They're also super uh, affordable. Yeah, like, and it's super affordable. I think like three for two dollars, and they have like many different flavors, like lychee rose, like brown yeah. sugar boba. There's even a bacon one that they released recently. Wow, <laughs> but they're innovative. Yeah, they also serve the local community though. Like when you go into the store, you can see like local sitting. So it's like the elderly. Yeah, <laughs> enjoying some kind of milk tea, yeah. you know? Um, like a local spot. Yeah, so highly recommend. Well, I'll also tell people they should go to your Instagram. Uh, what I... Oh, no. That was a teapot. <laughs> what I love about what you do on your Instagram is, like, you go fully into the history of the place and the family behind it, which I think is really interesting. You know, it's... You might not consider yourself food writers, but... This is 2021. Some people in a day, like the only reading that they're getting done is on Instagram. That's how people, (laughs) but for real, right? Like that's how people are consuming things now. And even food writing, there's a formula too. And so much of it is so boring to me. (laughs) Uh, So it's, yeah, it's really interesting and fascinating to see the story behind the places you're going. I really appreciate that. The reason why we do that is because, I mean, a lot of times like you might pass by these businesses and it might seem kind of intimidating, like you don't know what to order, Mm. right? The story behind them. So we're trying to help people build a connection to the community, to the people, to story by highlighting these stories, right? And Mm. they're part of history, right? If we don't tell these stories, then they might be lost and our second generation can't enjoy the same places that we went to growing up. Mm. Yeah, and I feel like once you know the story, you have some kind of connection, right? Like, if you read that post, right, and then you bring a friend there, right? But like, oh, did you know, blah, 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 blah. So I think, and then, you know, it's like, it's better for them. So then, like, they know the story, and then, like, I feel like there's some kind of connection there. Hmm. When I was walking, we're on Bowery. We are on Bowery Street. And Broom, we're between Broom and Grand, I think. Yeah, so we're on Bowery. When I was walking from that direction on Bowery up here, I believe it was a dim sum place. I passed a place where there was just tons of people outside. Oh, was it Joe Shanghai? Yes. Probably. Okay. And they were like, you know, 45. And then the family would be like, yes, that's us. And then they would go inside. Uh, do you have like a go-to dim sum place in Chinatown? Um, I like, it's like a newer spot, dim sum palace. They recently opened and they actually have a promotion going on right now. I think you get 20% off if you dine before 3 p.m. So I really like dim sum palace. I also really like... Um, I think it's called Ping's. So they're like known as a seafood restaurant, but their dim sum is also pretty solid. 
Yeah, for me, I think golden unicorn because my family also would go there uh, when they're here. Mm. So it's like nostalgic a little bit. But yeah, like something that I also thought about when you mentioned Joe Shanghai is like the other reason why we highlight those stories because I think when people would go to Chinatown, they often go to like the well-known spots like Joe Shanghai or like Namwa Tea Parlor. So we really want to highlight like the hidden gems of Chinatown, right? That people might not know about, like this coffee shop they went to this morning is not even on Yelp, right? Yeah. They don't even have an English name, right? Yeah, so, so I think it's like kind of part of our mission to highlight these um, spots that people might not know about. Yeah, so we also highlighted a spot called Maysum, yeah. right? And like they have diner style like chairs inside and it like really dates back into like, you the know, 1960s, I in think. 1960s when oh, like cool. diners were like a really big thing. Uh, um, specifically for Americans, right? And like the Chinese thought, I was like, well, I can serve Chinese food, but in like a diner, in like a diner sort of looking oh, area. Oh, so cool. So then like they feel comfortable eating there, right? And they still have that now to this day. And like mm-hmm. if now knowing that fun fact, you're like, oh, I want to go check it out. Yeah. Right? So then it's like, it, it brings business to those um, small businesses that are not highlighted, you know, in, you know, the big name brands. Beyond the Instagramable spots. Yes. Is what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, Long Island, like, that's what you did as a teenager because diners are 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Like, where else can you go? You go to a diner. So I still feel, like, really romantically about diners. It's cool. <laughs> um, I, gr- I grew up, I lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn for, uh, gosh, five years, wait, maybe more, six years. Um, And I was walking distance to 8th Avenue down to Sunset and we called that like Brooklyn's Chinatown. Um, I have a friend who was born in Korea and she would take me to Flushing sometimes because there's some Korean restaurants there. And I'm aware that like the Chinatown in Flushing is just like growing exponentially right now. Um, is Manhattan's Chinatown shrinking at all or are those areas just getting bigger? Yeah, I for sure feel like it's getting gentrified, right? Like you, when you walk around Chinatown, you might notice that there's like galleries now, right? Or like uh, bougie speakeasies and white-owned businesses, which is like cool, you know, it's drawing a different crowd into Chinatown, right? But at the same time, you know, it's like we have to draw the line of preserving our mm-hmm. cultural heritage and the history and people here right there are mm. people living there remember there are people living there that rely on that community to live that are like working you know below minimum wage almost so they need that to survive and i want people to remember that is beyond just what you see mm. and like like chloe said earlier it was so close to soho and a lot of like different areas with like you know um that are not working class community uh so but Looking beyond, though, there are people who are actually living there and need, have that need. And I definitely do think that people from Manhattan, Chinatown are moving to the outer boroughs, right? Like, as you mentioned, like moving to Flushing or Sunset Park, Elmhurst and Bensonhurst, because those areas are cheaper, cheaper. right? So mm. definitely people are getting pushed out of Manhattan, Chinatown. Yeah, I think even from a selfish sense, let's say you have no empathy at all in your body. <laughs> like, do you want to live in a world where, like, everything is either a high rise or like a freaking olive garden like that (laughs) like i'm like kind of making it humorous but like that is my dystopian future and i have a fear of that and like that is in a way what the city's becoming like right now everywhere 
right here behind us, there's a high rise going up and like it's Whole Foods and high rises. And that is, that is boring. <laughs> yeah. And it is very interesting because I just got connected back with the Boston Chinatown community. That's exactly what's happened in Boston. Wow. And it's so sad because like a lot of like different place, uh, like residents are getting displaced because of that, mm. you know, like, um, and obviously it drives up the rent and not everyone can afford to be able to live there anymore. Mm. And it's very difficult for new immigrants. Mm. Were you surprised at all at the, I guess like the attention that you've been getting? Because I saw like on all different sorts of media outlets, you guys were getting covered. Um, was that shocking at all or were you, did you expect that? Yeah, definitely shocking because like when we first started, we had this idea like back in March, 2020, right when we were first um, working from home and we had some extra time, but like basically we had like no booking until October because tourism was dead, right? So when we first started, like it was like one-on-one -on -one tours, like we weren't getting that many bookings to get to the point where we are today. It's definitely like a lot of gratitude. A lot of people have helped us along the way. And yeah, I don't think we would have gone to where we are without like the partnerships and the people that we've met. Yeah. We were always like, whenever we got like, uh, like different news reports coming or journalists asking us to write about us. We're like, wow, but we're, we're just so small. Small, small potato. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and like we didn't intend for this to happen. It kind of just like came along as we are continuing to do what we want to do for Mouth Street Girls. Yeah, and just learning as we go because I think when we first started out, we just want to do like walking tours, but now we branch onto social media, mm. right? Like writing about different businesses, different events going on in China. So we were kind of like figuring out you know, what we want to do with our yeah. page and our yeah. brand. As we continue to and grow, platform as and well. like, you know, there's a lot more responsibilities that come with it, right? Yeah. So we're constantly learning as we grow. <laughs> well, it's very cool. Like I am someone that consumes that media and it's a valuable resource to have. I think it's very cool. Uh, can you uh, tell me about Run for Chinatown and like what, how you were affiliated and what that was? So we got connected. I think like Anna actually first started following Run for oh, Chinatown. Yes. I didn't even know about it. How did you find oh, okay. out about that? So I was like just, uh, so we were starting our Instagram page, right? I was like, oh, what other like community organization out there? And then I saw Run for Chinatown. So I just followed uh, Run for Chinatown. And then I was like, who is leading Run for Chinatown? It was Leland, <laughs> yeah. uh, Leland Yu. And then um, we just followed him for a little bit. And then I, didn't, I don't think it was until after our partnership with Welcome to Chinatown that like Leland and run coach Kai uh, reached out to us and was like how cool would it be to do a running tour yeah yeah I was like it's cool but also <laughs> never done it before, <laughs> never right? done it before. <laughs> um, and like it could be hard uh, if we run and talk at the same time and I, I was like, like I'm not a runner I'm like <laughs> I was like we gotta train for this yeah. too and I was like yo I don't know if I can like yell you know for like 30 people so we brought a mic oh yeah and before that we actually went on their art tour for Chinatown yeah to see what it oh, was sorry, like art run for Chinatown just to see what it was like yeah so we know like how to prepare for it and then we did the history run for Chinatown yeah and then I mean like can you imagine running around a Chinatown? It's very dense, you know? Yeah. So, like, you're like, how does that work? That was, like, crazy. There were, like, logistics. 50, 60 people that came out here. Yeah. It was yeah. a great turnout. Uh, and it know. raised money, right? Yes, it raised, raised money. Thanks for you. Yes. Um, 
And since then, I was like, damn, this is like such a great community. Like, yeah. I want to be more involved. So I've been going to their weekly Monday runs. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So it's been like a really great experience, just like get, getting to know more people in my community who are doing similar work and also care about the Chinatown yeah. neighborhood. It's amazing to like meet these people, right? Because they are also, also trying to do good for the community yeah. in a different way, right? Like a run for a Chinatown group, like a Chinatown community coming and running together yeah which so it's I like really phenomenal. cool like seeing these second third generation chinese americans kind of funnel their passion to help out chinatown like for us it's the yeah. walking tours leland is running um and i think that's kind of like the unexpected benefit of running this page is like getting connected to all these people like getting connected to you mm-hmm. and also yeah. all the other community members yeah yeah well it's it's very cool. And I'm like, I will, in the show notes for this, I'll link everybody to your pages. And I would really implore people to check you out and to join a tour, maybe join a run. Um, I think like, like everyone in the pandemic, I went through like bouts of moodiness and maybe even depression. And I think that New Yorkers like already go through that a bit. Like, uh, like most New Yorkers, I have like a love-hate relationship with this city. You know, when it's, when you're coming home from work and it's rush hour and you're on a pack train and your like face is stuffed in someone's armpit and you can't move, you're like, (laughs) I hate this city. Um, And there was a point in the pandemic where I was just feeling kind of low. And my girlfriend and I went to Fat Choi. I don't know, yeah, it's like, Um, I don't know if it's vegan, but it's like vegetarian Chinese comfort food, right? Um, and just just walking around, like I said, like seeing the shrimp jump out of the buckets and seeing the smells, or seeing the smells, um, smelling the smells and seeing the sights. It reminds me of like when I'm traveling overseas in the places that I love the most. And I was like, oh yeah, right. This is why I love this city because I have access to this thing. So I think you guys are doing awesome work in promoting Chinatown, in educating people. I hope it grows. I hope it catches on more. Um, And thank you for bringing me here at Prince Tea House, because I've never been here before. So thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. This was really fun. (laughs) Cheers. Hey, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 251 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you, Chloe and Anna. I had a great time. I'm so happy to be back. Uh, It was awesome walking around um, Chinatown today and going to the tea house and having this conversation. Voyagers, I hope you enjoyed it. I am going to be recording a few more in the near term here, so stay tuned. Uh, Always happy to have you along for the ride. For now, I will sign off and say, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very, very soon. Mm -hmm.